You're now listening to the Bar Stars Podcast, where we explore health, longevity, and performance. I'm your host, Edward Checo, and we'll be diving deeper into topics I've been studying for the last 10 years as a catastatics expert. Today, our guest is Chris Masterjohn. He holds a PhD in nutritional sciences from the University of Connecticut and was an assistant professor of health and nutrition sciences in Brooklyn College here in New York. We talk about why what to eat is so complicated, should we go vegan for our health, and what principles should dictate a healthy diet. All right, enjoy. What's up, Chris? How's everything? Real good, real good. Thanks for having me here. First, uh, why is nutrition so complicated? Why are there so many people looking at so much different research but coming up with so many different answers? Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you think about what nutrition is, or at least, you know, my, my PhD in, is in nutritional sciences, which is kind of a separate discipline from dietetics. So if someone calls themselves a nutritionist or, or a dietitian, or they're doing nutritional consulting, they're in the business of telling people what to eat. And there's ways to simplify that. Like you can have a committee that makes a protocol that says, tell these people to do this, tell those people to do that. But nutritional sciences is looking at the science of what nutrition does to the body, what happens inside when you eat things and things like that. And if you think about what that actually is, it's really the intersection of all the relevant sciences of the body, like biochemistry and physiology and cellular and molecular biology with the food that we eat. So nutritional sciences is you eat a hamburger, what's the molecular and cellular biology, the physiology and biochemistry of what happens after you eat that hamburger. And if you look at those sciences, those sciences are in turn based on simpler sciences like their subdisciplines of biology, which is based on chemistry, which is based on physics. And, you know, in physics, there are real simple rules like what goes up must come down. And I'm, you know, physics is going to balk at my depiction of physics. There's a lot of complicated, complicated things in physics. Um, but there's like solid laws where you do one thing and, and that one thing happens. But in something like the human body, you're building on those processes to have trillions of cells, trillions of microbes that are even complicating things even further. And then so many different organs that need to be, that have different demands at different times the brain has its needs, the muscles have its their needs, the heart has its need, and it, it has to be beating all the time to uh, sustain the body. And so with all these different needs, you have different tissues that start specializing in their functions. And so you take something like a biochemical pathway that is simply meant to extract the energy from food and use it, and then you add all kinds of complications because actually now the liver has to fuel the brain's needs when you're fasting in this way. And then when you're eating and you're, uh, if you're eating carbohydrate, it's going to fuel the brain's needs in that way. And there are so many complexities that get added to that, that you don't have any simple rules, like what goes up must come down. You got lots of, uh, thousands of complicated rules of, you know, if this molecule goes over there, turn it into that so you can send it over there. And so the, just on that alone, what happens in the body is extremely complex when you eat a piece of food. But then you also take the fact that, um, you know, unlike basic physical objects like a rock or something like that, like most, most rocks of a certain type are going to be more or less the same, behave the same way. Humans and basically everything else that's biological is subject to 
variation that evolves over time. It's a basic principle of how we evolved is that within any population, there is going to be variation in that population. And from that variation through changing environments comes speciation. That's how humans evolved from our predecessors. And so the corollary of that is we humans have lots of variation between us. And so when so there's I, no ideal diet for any one specific person. Yeah. So the way this all boils down to is when I look at nutrition, I think that there's two overwhelming rules of nutrition. One is your needs are not mine. Mine are not yours. Uh, you know, take our needs, compare them to someone in the audience. Our needs are going to be different. Then also our needs change over time. So my needs aren't what they were 10 years ago and your needs aren't what they're going to be in 10 years. That's crazy. Yeah. And so then if you're in the mindset that most people take towards studying nutrition is what is the truth about saturated fat? And that just like in the light of that complexity, it's a stupid question. Like a much more reasonable question is, you know, what does saturated fat do in a particular circumstance? Yeah. And what might be the circumstances where I might want to eat more or less of it or where it might not matter? And uh, until we start thinking at a level of nuance that is basically like, how do I individualize these recommendations to myself? And how, when I come to a conclusion, how do I hold to that conclusion strongly enough to keep me motivated to keep what I found that works, but hold it loosely enough that I'm willing to change my mind when I realize that my needs are changing over time? Like, that's where we need to move. And I think most, most people looking at nutrition are, are quite far from moving into that level of nuance. Can you give an example of uh, someone whose need would change, let's say? Uh, yeah, I'll give you a great example. For a specific nutrient or food. Yeah, I'll give you a great example. About 8% or so of the world's population has a genetic impairment in their ability to regulate their the iron that they absorb from food. You know, most of us, if we have too much iron, we just absorb less from food, doesn't matter. You can eat as much iron you want, and the iron in your body is not gonna change unless you know, unless you're just straight up deficient in iron. But as long as you're getting enough, you could eat twice as much, three times as much, four times as much, the iron in your body's not going to change. But about 8% of us have a defect in, in our iron absorption so that if we do eat too much, we will accumulate too much in the body and it'll start to cause harm. Now, if you take a woman uh, of childbearing years, that woman will have a tendency to lose too much iron because iron is lost in menstrual fluid because there's a lot of blood in menstrual fluid and 90% of the iron in our body is in our red blood cells. So when we lose blood, that's the principal way that iron leaves the body. And there is an enormous variation in how strong a woman's menstrual flow can be. And so for women with a very strong menstrual flow, they can have a very strong disposition to iron deficiency anemia while that's true. Is that why I know a lot of girls that are iron deficient? Or uh... It absolutely is, yeah. Yeah, and that's another. That's a is a ta tangent, but it's it's an irony that like culturally meat is for men, uh, but actually women need to eat more iron rich meat than men do for this reason. But now imagine that a woman has the genes for iron overload, so she is genetically predisposed to absorb too much iron from her food, have it accumulate in her body, and have it cause harm. But suppose that woman is also heavily menstruating. All of her, if she doesn't know her genetics, all of her blood work is going to indicate that she has a tendency towards anemia. Now, think of the symptoms. The symptoms of, I mean, to, to simplify a little bit, um, let's just take something like fatigue or hair falling out. Those can both be symptoms of iron deficiency anemia. 
Those can both be symptoms of iron overload. Imagine this woman realizes that whenever she starts to feel like that, when those symptoms start creeping up, her iron levels are always low in her blood, she knows that what she needs to do is eat a lot of red meat, and she feels better. Well, now imagine that that woman at some point starts experiencing a reduction in menstrual flow. And there could be a variety of reasons. Maybe she hit menopause or maybe much earlier, much earlier than that, um, she had amenorrhea for another reason. But once that changes, you know, she still probably doesn't know that she's genetically predisposed to iron overload. But if her menstrual flow uh, stops or becomes much, much lighter, all of a sudden she, the, the flip is switched. She now, is, she now has switched to the predisposition to accumulate too much iron from food. But imagine that, you know, for a while she doesn't feel anything, but at some point she does start accumulating too much iron and she starts to feel fatigued. Maybe her hair starts falling out. All these things indicate that she need, now needs to eat more red meat, more red meat, more red meat. But this time it's not working as well. So she eats more red meat. She's like, what do I got to do? I got to double down. Eat more red meat, more red meat, more red meat. It could be years and years before she discovers that actually her predisposition is completely different now. Her needs are basically the opposite of what they were before. But because she was stuck in the mindset of how things used to work, now she's, she's very resistant to realizing that actually things work very, very differently now. That's a total mind blown. Yeah. <laughs> How would you recommend that people find this out? Like, I know there's a, I've seen a couple websites that offer a DNA testing and then recommend a diet, but then I've also seen articles that uh, attack it and said that the science is too early. Yeah, I mean, the, the science is too early for what most sites claim to be doing. Uh, for what most sites that claim to be adjusting diet to genetics are doing. But, you know, some of the genetics is there. So for, for the case of iron overload, the relevant gene is called the HFE gene. And well, I should say probably about 95% or more of cases of iron overload relate to the HFE gene. And the HFE gene is very testable. Like if you get 23andMe, for example, it uh, will give you a report on the HFE gene, and you can use that. I think that is ready for prime time. It can get more complicated when you get into edge cases. Like there are a lot of rare uh, genetic issues that are not tested for by anyone that can also cause uh, iron overload. But the but that HFE gene is testable and it is applicable to about 95% of people. I mean, you asked, but you asked me, how do we wrap our minds around this? I mean, I think it's a matter of knowledge, right? So if you take that one specific example, if a woman knew that, that would instantaneously open her mind to that possibility. You so know, if, it, if you get this 23 and one test, it'll give you yeah. a genetic report, right? Yeah. And it, it will tell you these genes because I've done it before and I've actually pulled I, it. I believe it will. I mean, it's complicated because they keep changing what they tell you. But I, when I got it, they did tell me that, and I believe they tell it now. If I'm wrong, uh, it's possible I'm wrong because I don't have access to... Uh, actually, my girlfriend just got it, so I guess I'll find out what the current uh, offering to people who live in New York is. Awesome. And it might be different in New York, too. I'm not sure. I didn't really answer your question. I answered in this very narrow sense um, of the HFE gene, but I mean... In a much broader sense, how, how would people know about this stuff? I really think it's a matter of education. And um, and actually, I, uh, as we were talking about before, I, I'm coming out with a book on this. And I think that's, that's sort of why I'm coming out with a book on this, because 
these are things where um, there is no like quick fix besides understanding this. And so I really think that uh, I, I really think that people need to have a basic knowledge in nutrition, and it's not something where you can just go to your doctor. You know, doctors doctors are not required to learn anything about nutrition, or medical schools are not required to teach anything about nutrition. The average doctor gets 19 total hours, not credit hours, 19 total hours over the course of four years on nutrition training. And uh, in residency and after medical school, generally zero nutrition training or less than what they got in medical school. 95% of doctors say it's their job to, to teach their patients about nutrition. And 90% of doctors say that they did not receive adequate training to do that. So wow, not, so 90% of doctors agree with me. <laughs> That's so discouraging. That you can't just go to your doctor, right? And, um, you know, you could go to a dietitian, but the reality is uh, one, one in a thousand doctor's visits in the United States result in some kind of interaction with a dietitian. And, you know, there's dietitians who have private practices and you can seek consulting. Uh, I'm not against that. A lot of people would benefit from that. So go do it. However, no one, no one can take, no, there is no substitute for you and me understanding enough about nutrition to just navigate basic things like this, like understanding what our needs might be now and how they might change over time. You think it's realistic for uh, every person to at least have a, a basic knowledge of nutrition that applies to them personally? I think that it's, it's realistic over the long term with a lot of the right kind of education. I think most people are not going to sit, almost no one is going to sit down and read a nutrition textbook, that's for sure. Most people are not going to obsessively Google down rabbit holes and learn everything that they can from all kinds of websites that they don't know whether they can trust or not. Um, but I think we could do a lot at basic levels to get, you know, easy, fun, in the right context, entertaining nutrition education that, yeah, I think could could equip people with a, I mean, it, if it were to really to be pervasive, it would have to get down to like elementary school level. But, you know, if someone doesn't, if someone else doesn't do it first, I actually think like I, I, it's a kind of my vision for the future to get engaged in like nutrition education uh, up and down at every level. Like uh, right now, I, the book that I'm coming out with, I think is pretty kind of middle of the road for someone who's an adult and has an interest in this. But I'd like to sort of scale all the way back to children's books at some point and somehow impact what's going on in health classes and stuff like that. I mean, that's kind of far off in the future, but that's the kind of force it would take to really get pervasive understanding on a person-to-person level. I think that's a great idea. We learn about so much wide topics that don't apply to us in school from, you know, kindergarten all the way to 12, like uh, photosynthesis. I think uh, learning personal nutrition is a, is a, a much <laughs> yeah. more important applicable. Yeah, I mean, photosynthesis is cool and all, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's uh, raise the temperature in the room. Should everyone go vegan for their health? <laughs> no. I could bring a variety of perspectives to this. I mean, first of all, if you look across time and space, um, no human population on the face of the earth anywhere 
uh, at a population level has intentionally been vegan or carnivore. So if you look at where we came from as humans, and I'm not, and I'm not saying this because we ideologically have to follow what was done in the past. I'm not making that argument, but I think it's important to set the context. So for millions of years across human time and sp- all human time and space, across all continents, across all latitudes in every conceivable environment, basically the proportion of animal foods and plant foods correlates with the abundance, the relative abundance of plant foods, which directly is correlated with how close you are to the equator. So we evolved in an equatorial context where plant foods were very abundant and animal foods at the equator make up about 37% of calories. So even in maximal plant abundance, humans ate about a third of their calories from animal products. And then as you go up to the Arctic, as you get closer and closer to the Arctic, the animal foods go up in the diet from traditional diets and the plant foods go down which correlates with the fact that there's just less plant foods available. Plant foods are very, very scarce in the Arctic, and yet uh, Arctic diets are probably about 5% plant foods. And if you look at what ethnographers found when they studied uh, the cultures of people in the Arctic, uh, these, these cultures put a lot of emphasis on trying to obtain and secure and preserve plant foods to have available. Um, and they had a lot of knowledge of the different plant foods that were available and went out of their way to get them. So there, you know, where we come from is a place where humans have always, at a population level, recognized the importance of eating both animal and plant foods. And humans have always do- eat, eaten richly from animal foods and plant foods as, uh, as much as they were able to. So I think that's one point. Plain vegan advocate, though, yeah. they would say that humans could survive on on any diet, but I think what the, the argument for veganism is the optimal health sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I don't think anyone who is, um, I don't think anyone who's advocating a vegan diet is saying that we came from a vegan diet historically, but I think it's, it's a essential context in my mind. In terms of whether it is an optimal vegan diet, I think, you know, what do we know? So first of all, we know that there's a lot of people who do a vegan diet and who thrive on a vegan diet. I think it's easy to find examples of that. It's easy to find examples of of athletes who thrive on a vegan diet. It's easy to find examples of people who report feeling great on a vegan diet. It's easy to find people who resolve health problems on a vegan diet. I think if we look at, and I can't cite studies, um, off uh, offhand here, um, but from what I've seen, vegans do have a lower risk of cardiovascular disease, but not a not a longer lifespan. And in studies where uh, and the differences between vegans and omnivores tend to decline when looking at populations that are health conscious. So when looking. Um, when health food shoppers, for example, are compared, the differences between omnivores and vegetarians and vegans start disappearing. What we don't know is what are what if we took a hundred or a thousand people off the street? Because remember, the question that you asked me wasn't it wasn't uh, can some people go vegan and optimize their health? It was should everyone go vegan yeah, for their health? No, right? and I think that's the yeah. argument that's commonly heard among. Uh... 
vegan advocates or that is what that is everyone vegan. should go yeah, vegan. Yeah, exactly. oh, okay okay so in order to support that everyone should go vegan it really most of what i just said doesn't matter <laughs> what actually matters is if you took a hundred people or a thousand people off the street and you put them on a vegan diet what would be the percentage of people who thrive on that diet and what would be the percentage of people who didn't matter and what would be the percentage of people who, who, who hurt their health and so i think the in the very limited evidence that we have is from polling and this polling is cross-sectional rather than perspective what that means is they just asked people are you vegetarian now are you vegan now were you once vegetarian were you once vegan that's cross-sectional because we're just taking uh, people as they exist and categorizing these are the ex-vegans, these are the current vegans, and so on. Perspective data would be the ideal data. It would be like, let's take a random sample of people from the population, let's put them all on a vegan diet regardless of whether they wanted to be on one, and let's see what happens. And so what you would want as evidence that everyone should go vegan is that perspective data that if you took a thousand people regardless of whether they wanted to go vegan regardless of whether they thought they could put them on a vegan diet they all get better a hundred percent of them yeah that that would be like well if it worked for this sample maybe it'll work for everyone so what we instead have is um what we know is is that the number of ex-vegetarians and vegans self-reported in surveys outnumbers the number of current vegetarians and vegans about four to one or five to one. So basically, uh, 80% of people who go vegan or vegetarian start eating meat again with, uh, and I don't know what within what time frame, but generally within a few years. And further, when people are asked why, about half of them say that it was because they felt their health suffered on the vegan diet. And so, you know, that's that self-reporting. There's not a lot of science on it. There's like no scientific investigations of like what happened that hurt their health. What's the objective evidence that their health was hurt? But between not having any perspective data showing that people, you know, of the type that we were just talking about, having polling data suggesting that they're the overwhelming majority of people who go vegan stop going vegan and half of them do that because of their health, it doesn't look too good for the idea that everyone would benefit from veganism. Are you familiar with the Adventist Health Study? I'm familiar with Seventh-day Adventists and numerous studies that have been done on them. So yeah. uh, the, one I'm, um, the one I'm thinking about is the one of uh, the Loma Linda population, and uh, I've seen yeah. a presentation by the author, and yeah. it looked like he made the point that when, as they reduced meat, their, like, uh, their risk for, certain, for a majority of diseases was coming down their average BMI was lower and their life expectancy was going up with the exception of uh, pescatarians who outlived the vegans. Yeah, uh, I'm I mean, I'm familiar with the Seventh-day Adventist studies and that's generally true. I don't give it much, well, I don't give it a lot of credence at all, but I, but I, I don't give it any credence in the context of your question, should everyone, everyone go vegan uh, to, what was, how'd you phrase it, to optimize their health or for yeah. their health? Um, so, I mean, first of all, the Seventh-day Adventist population is uh, kind of unique. And one of the things that makes it unique is they have a religious advocacy of vegetarianism. And so if you take certain uh, personality traits that you would uh, that might be expected to correlate with health, like the degree to which people 
uh, adhere to their spiritual practice or the degree to which people make choices that they are taught are healthy choices and so on. Uh, I think that could easily be explained by those confounders. Like these are people who are more conscientious, who are more health conscious, who are more aligned with what they perceive as spiritual good. And I think that might explain health benefits there. Um, but also, I mean, in a, in a, like, of course, if someone goes vegan, their BMI is going to go down. And, of you know, it, how to interpret that kind of depends on the initial context. In almost any case where people are overweight, any restrictive diet is going to lead to their BMI going down. And there's going to be health benefits from the BMI going down. So that's a complicating factor there as well. But I don't give that much credence in terms of should everyone go vegan for their health for the reasons that we were just talking about what are some common deficiencies that a, a vegan should be worried about and what could what could be the long-term damage of, of said deficiencies with the exception of b12 i feel like that's already so popular yeah i think everyone knows about b12 so there are a number of nutrients that are more difficult to get from plant foods and it, uh, and so in some cases, it depends on the person's genetics. In some cases, it doesn't. So the ones that are most difficult to get, uh, regardless of someone's genetics, would be uh, zinc and iron. Actually, let's take zinc. Zinc is a clear example. So zinc is most abundant in red meat and cheese and oysters. And actually, oysters are up here way up here at the top, red meat and cheese are like, you know, halfway down. And then everything else is like way under that. On top of that, the bioavailability, meaning how easily do you absorb the zinc from that food and incorporate it into your body? Uh, the bioavailability of zinc from animal foods is about on average five times that as the bioavailability of zinc from plant foods. And if you look at zinc, like in, you know, in America, zinc status like, I think a lot of people need more zinc, but in general, zinc status here is not that bad. But the World Health Organization estimates that 50% of the entire global population is vulnerable for zinc deficiency. And if you look at the public health research uh, around zinc deficiency, and, and, and like this is a severe problem. If you grow up in a population where zinc deficiency is endemic, this is real serious because you can create a vicious cycle where the zinc deficiency leads to chronic diarrhea and the chronic diarrhea leads to chronic zinc de uh, depletion because you lose zinc in the diarrhea. And, um, and, and if, of course, if it's in a, a country where you don't have adequate access to like medications that stop diarrhea, it's like a really serious problem. Um, but if you look at the public health campaigns there, there's basically two strategies that people are using to try to improve zinc nutrition worldwide. And one is called defitinization, and that is referring to the fact that phytate, which is present in whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, is the principal inhibitor of zinc absorption. So when I told you that uh, zinc is five times more bioavailable from animal foods than plant foods, that is because, that's partly because um, most, if you look at the plant foods that are rich in zinc, it's mostly whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes, which are also what's rich in phytate, which is the main thing that inhibits zinc absorption. So and, it's like they're fighting against each other. Yeah, 
but the, and then on top of that, meat has substances that promote zinc absorption, but the, and that's separate. So defitinization means how do we get phytate out of the diet? And so the real science, the real sort of like people that believe in like science and technology and progress in all things, genetically engineer plants to not make phytate. Well, the problem is that in a seed, the reason it has phytate is to lock the minerals, lock up the minerals until it's time to sprout and prevent the seed from sprouting until the conditions are good for it to grow instead of rotting. So they genetically engineer these foods to not make phytate and they just rot. <laughs> so that hasn't been working well. Now, traditional food preparation, uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure you've uh, encountered this before, uh, there's a whole school of thought that says we should sprout or soak or ferment our whole grains, nuts, seeds, and legumes. And that doesn't get rid of phytate, but it, it uh, basically mimics the conditions of sprouting and reduces the phytate. So that's the popular defitinization strategy. Now, the other thing is increasing the animal foods in the diet. And if you look at the public health papers that are being done, um, they're basically come to, coming to the conclusion that defitinization helps, but it, 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 uh, it is not enough on its own to replete zinc status in these populations and increasing animal foods is the, will be a necessary part of that. And you say, well, what's the difference between that and like, you know, maybe vegans in the United States might need more zinc, but they're not, we don't have an epidemic of chronic diarrhea among vegans in the United States. Well, a huge part of it is that they didn't grow up vegan most of the time. So these are populations where generation after generation, they were subsisting on um, very low animal food intake because of poverty and because of food availability in the region. And so they're starting- What regions were these? What's that? Do you know what regions they were? Well, it's, ha it's half the globe. So, I mean, most of the developing world in general. Got it. Yeah. A big part of it is that we're coming from a place in the United States of most people having at least basic adequate nutrition relative to much of the developing world. And so if you go vegan, like I've been vegan before. I went vegan when I was in my 20s. Well, if you have the benefit of having, you know, pretty normal nutrition for 20 years and then you go vegan, um, your zinc status might decline, but it might take a long, 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 long time before you ever get to anything like someone who was growing up in the third generation on a exceedingly low animal product diet. But you know, one of the things that happens in zinc deficiency is your body kind of shrinks and because uh, your body tries to fight to maintain normal zinc status. Um, and so I do, uh, I do, I do wonder whether a lot of people who are, who are, you know, there's some people who are on vegan diets who are very muscular, very fit. Um, but there's a lot of people who have very low body mass. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of these people, um, are running low in zinc. Uh, but z certainly zinc is, is, um, one of the things that I would target. Besides getting smaller and having bad diarrhea, what are some other things? <laughs> so, yeah. So actually, I mean, generally you're not going to get smaller unless you're pretty zinc deficient over time. The first thing that would, that would happen, well, on average, the first thing that happens is you get patches of dry skin. And then the, after that, you tend to get sick more often. You know, when they do it experimentally, people start popping up with a sore throat. And then also, uh, the the, the dry, patch to dry skin often progress to acne in some cases. In other cases, they can blister and form pustules. There seems to be at least a significant amount of anecdotal support 
of people with acne that responds very well to zinc supplementation. So I suspect that a lot of people with acne um, probably have marginal zinc status. Are supplements safe? That's sort of like, are medications safe? Um, well, medication Some of them is are, definitely a little bit more regulated than supplements. Yeah, that's at true. least here in, in this country, America. That yeah, that's definitely true. But medications still kill. I forget what the stats are, like a hundred thousand people a year or something like that, um, when used according to the label. I, I don't remember the exact stats. That's pretty but, scary. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, look. So there's a there's an awful lot of medications. There's a lot awful lot of supplements. I think certainly the supplement space is is more or less unregulated in the United States and. There's you pr you probably have to do a lot more of your own homework on, you know, finding companies that are reputable, finding practices that are associated with purity and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, probably if you get a pharmaceutical, if you get a prescription medication in the United States, probably the only thing in that is whatever it says is on the label. Um, that's that's for sure. Uh, but look. Um, I mean, you're kind of on your own in terms of having knowledge to use supplements safely. But I think if, if uh, generally, if you stick to getting amounts of nutrients that are, that you could get from a really good diet, I think you're in pretty safe grounds with supplements. So we'd be worried when you see like a, a multivitamin, it'll tell you like 10,000 times the recommended daily allowance. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't really like many, if any, multivitamins on the market. But, you know, sometimes that's safe. So, for example, like riboflavin, the the daily value for riboflavin is less than 5 milligrams. It's like 1.3 milligrams. And it's easy to find riboflavin at 100 milligram doses or 400 milligram doses. And so these are, you know, 100 times or more the daily value for riboflavin, if you put that in a percentage, a uh, hundred times is about a hundred thousand percent. And that is very well shown to have no negative consequences. But there's, there are other ones where they do, there are toxicity syndromes. So you really have to take it on a case by case basis. Is there any supplements you would recommend to a default? I, I of course you probably should get as, blood tests to have a very individual thing. Yeah. As but, a, I mean, as a, you mean that everyone should take? Yeah, most likely everyone. Like, for uh, example, I hear a lot of vitamin D, that most people are deficient in vitamin D, especially during the winter. I mean, if you're not going to run blood tests and you want to supplement with one or 2,000 IU of vitamin D during the coldest three months of the year, you're probably fine. But no, there aren't, there aren't any supplements that I would just recommend everyone take. And, you know, I, and I, I think that's because... Uh, it is it is so individual like i was saying before you know that's the that's the, the the principles that i started out with our needs are all different and they change over time you know if someone's going to take a multivitamin like it's not the end of the world but and some people should take a multivitamin if they're not eating a good diet but like i don't there are other people that can tell people to take multivitamins if they're not eating a good diet. I'm probably, I'm, I probably should use my influence to tell people to eat a good diet so they don't need a multivitamin. Perfect. You know? <laughs> Would you say a good basis to start your diet off is trying to hit up all the recommendations for the vitamins and minerals? Well, I'll answer that two ways. I mean, I think that whatever your baseline diet is should hit those, but I don't, but I think that's a little complicated as a means of, sitting down saying, what am I going to eat? 
like that's a lot of looking up things and how much value they have. And it's actually, that's actually kind of complicated because if you got 30 nutrients or so that have uh, daily values, you've got to hit, that's just piecing together a lot of information. So I think it's actually like way easier to start with some rules, simple rules of thumb. For example, I think that, you know, one rule, like if I were to make a few rules of thumb, I would say number one, everyone should get a half a gram to a gram of protein per pound of body weight. If you don't have a body composition goal, you can go on the lower end. If you do, you should probably go on the higher end. If you're not vegan, you're not carnivore, then, you know, diversify that across meat, fish, chicken, eggs, dairy, legumes, etc. If you're carnivore, you take out the legumes. If you're vegan, you got to eat a lot of legumes. I think if you look across vegan foods, you know, legumes are really where it's at in terms of providing uh, a high enough amount of protein. And I know you got to mix them with grains and blah, 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 blah. But like, you really have to put the emphasis on legumes in your diet at that level of protein. But if we're talking a baseline, like forget the restrictive diets, just diversify across the protein sources and get that much protein, I think is a big number one. Number two, I would say for your, I think people have a lot of room with in terms of how much carbohydrates and fats they eat. But if but uh, in your carbohydrates, diversify across legumes and other starches, like starchy tubers. And I think, you know, if you don't have any intolerances, diversify across grains and so on. And across fruits, I would kind of uh, lump those in with the uh, carbohydrate foods. And then I would say, eat several cups a day of vegetables and try to diversify across the color spectrum. Put a special emphasis on red, yellow, orange, and green vegetables, and put double emphasis on green vegetables, especially dark green ones. And then I think everyone would benefit, you know, everyone who eats animal products would benefit from trying to eat more nose to tail. And that includes trying to consume more of the gelatin-rich tissues, like the bones and skin and tendons and so on and that includes the organ meats like liver and heart and kidney and so on and i think the easiest way for people to engage with that rule of thumb is to drink bone broth which you know done done right uh the right recipe can be pretty tasty for most people and most people who didn't grow up eating liver are probably never going to like liver but i think eating like four to eight ounces of liver a week, it can be an extremely powerful way to get a lot of nutrients in that you wouldn't otherwise get in. So I think it's a very good rule of thumb to try to follow. And I think those right there would be, would be really good places to start. And then you can kind of analyze that diet and see if it's hitting all the nutrient values. But I think if you follow rules of thumb like that, you're in a very good starting place. And if you have restrictive diets or you have, um, or you have, you know, food intolerances or allergies, then you can start modifying that baseline and see what do you need to swap in and out in order to maintain the nutritional value of that diet. Two questions on your recommendations. Uh, is there any danger in a high protein diet? Uh, I've heard of people mention uh, spiking IGF-1. I take like a, a bigger picture view on this, um, regardless of what protein does to IGF-1. If you look at the things that humans are dying of, humans generally speaking, humans are very blessed if they die from cancer. It means they lived long enough that they survived heart disease, long enough that they didn't die in the year following a hip fracture, long enough that they didn't die from complications of diabetes. And, you know, I do think that if you have cancer, um, and I, the science is, is definitely not 
sort of uh, final on this. But you know, if I had cancer, I would I would definitely be thinking about reducing my protein intake. But if we're looking at like everything leading up to someone living long enough to get cancer, most of the most of the things that people might die from before that, protein intake is very important for. So, for example, we have epidemic levels of osteoporosis and sarcopenia, and the amount of protein someone has to eat as they age to maintain their muscle mass goes up, not down. So the average person who is hitting their 50s or 60s and losing muscle mass, they need to eat more protein than a young person does to maintain that muscle mass. And if they don't, then they're at risk of metabolic disorders, osteopenia, osteoporosis, a huge number. Of, I don't know why this is, but a huge number of people die the year after a hip fracture. And people are getting hip fractures a lot earlier than people are dying of cancer. And so I think that from the, protection, from the perspective of common metabolic disease, osteopenia, sarcopenia, osteoporosis, protein is just very clearly protective there. Then heart disease, I think the relationship with protein is pretty ambiguous. I honestly don't think protein intake is generally going to have a big impact on heart disease. I could give you a mechanistic argument either way, why it might make it worse or why it might make it better. I don't think it's a major thing. But then, you know, as far as cancer, protein has a very interesting relationship. So T. Colin Campbell is the author of the China Study, which is one of the earlier vegan books. And he's, he's one of the main forces in preaching a lower protein diet in the context of veganism. And I read every study that he ever did with rats. And I found some really interesting things that he didn't talk about in his book. So what he found early on in his rat experiments with cancer was that if he fed a high protein, which was a high casein, high milk protein diet to rats before he dosed them with aflatoxin to give them to initiate cancer, the high protein protected them against developing precancerous lesions. When he fed them high protein afterwards, the high protein fueled the cancer growth. And what he did from that was throughout the dozens of papers that he published, after he learned that, he always put them on a low-protein diet before aflatoxin dosing to maximize the number of precancerous lesions that would happen. Then he would randomize them to either a high-protein diet to fuel the cancer growth or a low-protein diet to protect against the cancer growth. But in every case, they were given low-protein diets specifically to get more precancerous lesions. So that raises the question, well... So he rigged it. I mean, yeah, he rigged it, but like when he didn't write the book, you wouldn't look at that and be like, he rigged it. You look at that and be like, oh, he has a good model. He developed the good animal model for making lots of cancer. Like after he wrote the book, you say he rigged it because now he came out with like a ideology around it and he hid the fact that he used low protein to increase the precancerous lesions. Like that, that's a sort of error of omission that looks like ill intent. But, but it's hard to ascribe the intent to him 20 or 30 years before he wrote the book. Like, I think he was just doing research, you know, but that raises the question, well, what's, what do I do? Because I'm not going to be in some industrial af, uh, accident where someone, where like a, a tank of aflatoxin breaks and spills all over me. So am I right now, my pre- aflatoxin dosing or post-aflatoxin dosing. And so there were a couple studies that came out of India where they, instead of dosing the carcinogen at one particular time, 
They just fed small doses of carcinogen all the time, which is more like what we're exposed to. And in those studies, more protein always meant more protection. Why is that? Well, protein is absolutely critical to the detoxification of carcinogens. So protein makes glutathione, for example. Glutathione is the master antioxidant of the cell, and it is a key detoxifier of aflatoxin and many other environmental toxins and carcinogens. Um, there are many ways that pro- there are many other ways that protein promotes detoxification too. That's just an example. Um, but like you know, so cancer is not a clear. Uh, if I'm looking at Campbell's research and I and I find out I have cancer, you know, Campbell's research ma- really makes me wonder whether I should go on a low protein diet. But that research in its totality, you know, if I don't know whether I have cancer, I feel like I'm better off eating protein. All right. So you mentioned eating nose to tail. Should we be concerned about red meat? Concerned? Yeah. So it's listed on the World Health Organization as a, is it a carcinogen or a possible carcinogen? Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we, there's, it's certainly the case that when you cook red meat, there are many carcinogens that are formed. And, I, you know, I haven't delved super deep into this, but the impression that I've gotten is, and, and, and this impression is fed by the fact that even most people who argue against red meat don't really seem to dispute this from what I've seen um, or embrace it in any case. When you eat, even if you even if you cook the red meat in ways that develops lots of carcinogens, it seems to be counteracted when you eat it with a lot of plant foods. That's the impression that I've gotten. I mean, I don't know. Like, I would eat red meat. Like, if I'm eating a steak, I'm going to prefer it seared on the outside and uh, nice and red or pink on the inside. And, yeah, there's probably some carcinogens in the searing on the outside. Although, I mean, that's also true, like, if I'm going to, like, roast potatoes. It's there's there's acrylamide and whatever else in the crust on that potato. So I mean I don't think I don't think the formation of carcinogens in red meat in that way is really like a red meat specific thing. I think it's like there's a class of carcinogens that are going to accumulate on red meat, but there's many other classes of carcinogens that are caused that are going to develop from heavy cooking and stuff like that in other foods. And so I mean to me I think like don't don't overdo the cooking, eat it with plant foods and get the nutrition out of it that you need. I think red meat is a very good source of a lot of nutrients. And I think throwing it out on the basis of, um, on the basis of the cancer research, I think doesn't make sense to me. Is dairy inflammatory? I think can be inflammatory. I actually don't, I actually don't, uh, eat casein because, well, actually I do, I eat a little casein here and there. But for the most part, I avoid casein because it does cause an inflammatory reaction in me. But I think that's that's. You mean the protein powder or foods containing casein? Foods containing casein. So give some um, examples. Milk. Well, yeah. So what I what I noticed was um, when I was when I was really controlling my diet, eating the same thing every day, I was able to make some observations of like if I just take this out, put that in, what happens? And I noticed that when I would eat dairy, I would like an on-off switch, gained two pounds of water weight. There's no way that it could be explained by calories. And it was like, if I ate dairy, I'd weigh two, two more pounds and it would take a couple of days to come off. And it just, it was like clockwork. So I started experimenting to see what did this and what didn't. And I found that whey protein doesn't do it. Butter doesn't do it. But any, basically any other dairy product does it. And I experimented with, um, with goat and sheep and, uh, cause goat, so there's, 
in cows, there's A1 and A2 casein. Some people think that the A1 casein is not infl- is, uh, is the inflammatory one, but uh, goat and sheep don't have that issue. And so I never tried certified A2 cow milk, but the fact that goat and sheep did it to me indicates to me that it's like a general casein thing. So cheese, liquid milk, yogurt, those things. It's a shame because I actually I think dairy is uh, very uh, nutritious. Well, I should add that what one of the things that I noticed when I did that was that my allergy symptoms got a lot better. And removing dairy, I mean removing casein. Removing casein, yeah, and also like uh, under my eyes just got better. You know the bags under my eyes and whatnot, so I could see it in my face, and I could. I could I can tell mostly in the summer like in the summer my seasonal allergies to pollen seem to be potentiated by casein. I think it's kind of like a an inflammatory like you can think of a bucket and if you got something inflammatory making a chronic low level of histamine it fills your histamine bucket up a little bit then you got an allergy to some pollen and it's way more likely to hit the top of the bucket and overflow if the bottom half of the bucket's filled up from other stuff. So I think it's like that. But I don't think that's a general principle. I think, you know, milk is just one of those foods that some people tolerate well and some people don't. And I think that kind of reflects kind of reflects how we've evolved with milk as a species. Like, you know, some, some uh, people come from ancestry where milk was an essential part of the diet and there was a lot of cultural adaptations, genetic adaptations around drinking milk. Some people are probably very primed to be able to handle milk. Other people, not so much. Does apple cider vinegar burn fat? (laughs) What? You never Uh, heard that before? It's popular on the internet. Yeah. (laughs) Can you you elaborate on this? uh, Uh, There's a Japanese study where they uh, gave people, I think... uh, no apple cider vinegar, one spoon, two spoons. And uh, correlating, people were losing more fat when they had, let's say, the, the, the higher dose of apple cider vinegar. Oh, yeah. Well, probably lowers their appetite. Because of the taste? Oh, well, did they measure food intake in that study? I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't dive into it. I, I mean, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen that study. Um, but you must have heard it before or no? <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it just sounds so absurd that it's not like I would probably not look at it. Does any food or or uh, liquid burn fat? Yeah, I mean, the human body burns fat, and yes, what like what we eat can influence that. But I think that um, weight loss is almost exclusively about the calories in versus calories out. I think that fat loss versus other forms of weight loss, such as your lean mass, is mostly influenced uh, by you know. So, so at the top, at the top bird's eye view is how much weight do you lose is about calories. Then whether you lose that weight as more fat or more lean mass, generally you want to burn more fat is primarily about your protein intake and your workout. And then you know anything else that comes in is probably modifying those factors. And so apple cider vinegar, I mean, like generally things that like rev up your metabolism, like maybe you might get a benefit from something, make it, making it easier for you to go without food and feel better. And that, and that could easily be a placebo as well. 
placebo effects are real. If even if it's a hundred percent placebo effect, I'm not against taking a couple t- uh, tablespoon of apple cider vinegar if it helps you t- stay on top of your game. But I'd have to look at that study. I, I didn't see the study. I don't know what it's claiming. But you know, acids can stabilize blood sugar when they're t- like. Uh, a little bit of apple cider vinegar before a meal can stabilize blood sugar. It's conceivable that that would lower food cravings and maybe it regulates appetite. I'm not sure. I don't know. Could you give us an example of what you eat? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? <laughs> well, um, yeah. My, what, what do you, is it like, would you say you have a calculated approach or you just kind of? Like, I have a pretty calculated approach. It's, uh, but I was just laughing because today I was like kind of in a rush and I uh, had some whey protein and toast. <laughs> But uh, give us an idea. Typical, typical breakfast for me is actually um, some. Uh, uh, so White Oak Pastures makes this product called Paleo Ground Beef, and it's like I think it's like half ground beef, but then it's got liver, heart, kidney, and thymus in it, and uh, all ground up. And so I cook it as hamburger crumbles, and put lots and lots of taco seasoning on it. Tastes like taco meat. And uh, so it's a real, real easy way for me to get organ meats in, which I think are, I feel a lot better when I eat organ meats. Uh, so a typical breakfast for me is like um, white rice with pe- that ta- paleo ground beef cooked in taco seasoning on top of it with some butter and some nutritional yeast, a couple other supplements. I put a little bit of creatine on it. Really? <laughs> and I, yeah, and I salt it and, uh, and I just eat that. Um, and I, you know, I tend to like... I. Most of my most of my meals by myself tend to be very functional like that. Like it's that's not a meal that's designed to be delicious. That's a me- meal that's designed to be tolerable tolerable for me to get some of uh, some of the s- stuff that helps me feel the best that I don't necessarily like. Me and my girlfriend will like when we're busy we order out a lot, but when we have the time, we'll find a new recipe and cook a new recipe, make some leftovers and stuff like that. So I tend to really like really divide between the meals that I eat for functionality and the meals that I eat for pleasure. And Do you then, ever criticize her food? Like, you, should, you shouldn't be eating that, you should be eating. Not really. Like, uh, I'm a baby step kind of guy. And so she seeks my advice. And uh, I just I just give it to her when she's asking for it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not I, I'm not a high-pressure guy. You know? Yeah. Oh, how about your lunch and dinner? So you guys <laughs> order out? Do you guys order out that often? Uh, right, well, right now, because of the book that I'm working on, we uh, order out a lot. Um, but like a few months ago when there was less pressure and and when the book's uh, off, we, we, uh, we cooked meals a lot. So I, I look forward to going back to cook meals. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Do you take a calculated yeah. approach when you order out or is it just like, yeah, pizza? Um, yeah, I mean, so like for me, I, I don't, like I said before, I don't do that well on casein. So I'm generally not going to eat pizza. Like I'll eat pizza once in a blue moon when I'm like, I'm like, I just got to like not care today. Um, but for the most part, I'm generally eating like a meat, vegetables and rice kind of diet. Is there any foods that you'll tell people to stay away from across the board? Like let's say uh, enriched uh refined grains or enriched uh, bread, enriched flour? Yeah, um, I kind of have a nuanced view on this. So I think that uh, I don't think enriched flour is a health food by any stretch of the imagination. And I think that most people, when they improve their diet, will probably take the enriched flour out of it. 
However, there's a lot of people who preach enriched flour as a um, as kind of an evil or a fundamentally toxic thing. And I think that uh, some people become so obsessed with, with things like folic acid. So enriched flour is enriched with folic acid, which is a synthetic form of folate that doesn't exist except for very trace amounts in the, in the natural food supply. It's not the ideal form of folate, and it's true that some of us don't utilize it as well as others, and it's possible that no one utilizes it well enough to completely metabolize everything in the white bread that they eat if they're eating like six pieces of white bread a day. Uh, however, um, it's not fundamentally toxic. It does cure folate deficiency. It's added there because it uh, dramatically reduced the incidence of spina bifida and some other birth defects that cause lifelong crippling neurological issues. That's why it's added there. Uh, it has been effective at doing that. So the, there, there are some people who are kind of uh, preaching a very misleading case against folic acid as if it has no value of, as folate and as if it will like interfere with your folate metabolism if you have it. Uh, and what I think people don't recognize is that when you eat white bread, you are the unwitting beneficiary of the public health establishment's campaign to prevent you from having severe nutrient deficiencies. And, you know, it's not like, I mean, no one really in public health is like, yeah, white bread is, is an ideal food. Like no one's saying that. However, everyone knows that people eat white bread, and so when they want to add something to the food supply, they add to the white bread. It's like in Guatemala, uh, severe vitamin A deficiency. So what do they do? They add vitamin A to sugar. Like no one, no one, no public health persons out there saying people should eat more sugar, but that's what people are eating in Guatemala. So that's where they put the vitamin A. Um, so the thing is, like you know, it's really easy to imagine a scenario where someone hears that folate is in green vegetables, and so they stop eating white bread. And then they start eating a lot of frozen broccoli. And what they didn't realize is that folate is not stable in the freezer. And so their frozen broccoli, even though broccoli is a leafy green, I mean a flowery green, whatever you want to call it, even though it's a green, a green vegetable that should be high in folate, their broccoli might not be high in folate at all because uh, it all degraded in the freezer. Or even eating fresh vegetables. I mean, you do have to eat a very high volume of vegetables to get enough folate. And that, a lot of people, I don't think really, if, for the people who aren't like measuring everything and like tracking it in a nutrient tracking app, I think it can be surprising how much, how, what kind of volume of vegetables you actually have to eat. So even, even if you're eating fresh vegetables, you cut out the white bread and you start eating like this much vegetables in the corner of, you know, of each meal, you think you're eating a lot of vegetables. Um, those people can become folate deficient because of it. Um, and so it's like, I'm not an advocate of white bread, but you have to realize that when you stop eating white bread, all of a sudden that responsibility that was being borne by the public health establishment now has to be borne by you. Um, so yeah, cut out the white bread, but know what you're doing in designing your diet because it, you you don't magically wind up in a healthy place just because you cut out white bread. All right, so uh, tell us where we could pre-order your book and uh, where we could learn more about you and yeah. follow you. 
Yeah. Uh, so my book uh, soon to be coming out, hoping for March. Haven't set a finalized date yet, though. Uh, is Vitamins and Minerals 101, how to get uh, all the nutrients you need on any diet. And this is basically designed as a lighthearted and fun tour of uh, each of the essential nutrients. Uh, so there's a, a chapter on each vitamin, each mineral uh, for 29 main chapters in the, in the core of that part of the book. And then a chapter on some uh, that kind of collects a lot of the other uh, minor parts of the diet and uh, macronutrients and stuff like that. And it's basically for the person who wants to know, like, um, you know, what is vitamin A? What does it do? Um, how do I know if I need more? What should I look out for? Uh, how do I, how do I know how to get enough? Um, what are signs that I might getting, be getting not enough or too much? When should I start thinking about supplementing and then going through each of the nutrients like that? Um, and that book is, uh, is also meant to sort of um, bring you what you need on any particular dietary approach. And so uh, every chapter has like, what should vegans watch out for? What should carnivores watch out for? What should paleo dieters watch out for? Keto dieters, macrobiotic, people on weight loss, uh, you know, people into fitness and things like that. And um, you can get that on my website, chrismasterjohnphd.com and just click on book. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Real quick, if you like the podcast episode, you can help us out by rating us five stars. Just head to wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us a nice five-star review. It helps us rank and it helps us promote the podcast to more people. And it's a great way to share the message. We always appreciate your help and support. Thank you.